This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 64 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham. I've girded my loins for this episode at Top of the Pops from 1984, and standing by me are Neil Kulkarne and Simon Price. Hello. Boys, this is a pretty bog-standard mid-80s Top of the Pops, isn't it? Mm, it's all there. The great, yeah. the good, the grisly. Yeah. Um, it's a useful reminder of uh, exactly what was going on in a sense. Definitely, yeah. I mean, if we'd have been sat down with a blank sheet of paper and told that we were doing a 1984 episode of Top of the Pops, we could at least get 60-70% of the bands and artists that are on this show. You know, all the regulars yeah. are there, aren't they? Yeah, a lot of the big hitters of mid-80s pop. Basically, a lot of the names that, if they were an answer on Pointless, it would be a crap answer, but if they were on Family Fortunes, they'd be a good answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters, it is time to go way back to April of 1984. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Quarter past seven on Thursday, April the 26th, 1984. And Top of the Pops, now into its third year and eighth month under the reign of Michael Hurl, has firmly settled into the ADs. That's spelled <laughs> A-Y-D-E-E-S. <laughs> With the initial fripperies installed by Hurl phased out or toned down. Gone are the celebrity presenters. No more motor show tie-ins. Zoo are still hanging around but have been demoted from a dance troupe to cheerleaders and movable scenery. This is the 80s variant of Top of the Pops, chaps, in its leanest and purest form, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and it's great, actually, for a bit of contrast between the um, sort of celebratory nature of the show mm. and some of the acts who appear on it mm. because oh, yes. because you get to feel that, that that your acts are fighting the good fight against all this nonsense. Absolutely. Mm. Even though Zoo have kind of been pushed to a slightly peripheral role, like you say, um, the contrast between them and some of the music that we hear is, is, is quite, it's delicious. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> so your host tonight... Simon Bates, who is now into his seventh year as the overlord of the housewives in the nine to half eleven weekday slot, where he's currently acting as the meat in a Mike Reed Gary Davis sandwich. <laughs> Already a busy 1984 for Pig Wanker General, isn't it? Because he took over from Tommy Vance as the voice of the Radio 1 chart run down in January. And he'd hold the fort until September when he passed the baton to Richard Skinner. Now then, Simon Bates, normally at this point, I would say, Simon Bates, why? <laughs> but 
I can't do that this episode because, you know, with a playlist like this, Simon Bates is in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Because out of all the singles on this episode, I think there's only one that he definitely wouldn't play on his show. Yeah. I think two. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is his time, man. Yeah, he looks comfortable. And uh, even his sort of fluffed lines that we'll come to discuss, I'm sure, he, he oh, gets yes. through them. You know, he gets through. Uh, And amazingly, it looks like he's getting 80s compliant. Um, (laughs) The cream sports coat has been flung into the back of the wardrobe and he's sporting a moderately fashionable dark grey jacket with the sleeves unbuttoned. And when I say jacket, I don't mean suit jacket. I mean, you know, jacket, jacket. I'm surprised you say it's fashionable, right? (laughs) That jacket, right? Right, to me. Moderately fashionable. To me, right? By Bates standards. He looks like a Sunday driver. In that, yes. that grey jacket. It's what my nan would have called a wind cheater jacket. Yes. Right? And it looks like he's grabbed it from the passenger side footwell, you know. And uh, <laughs> and he's he's just popping in the petrol station for some antifreeze and um mm. and a bar of Cadbury's old Jamaica and uh, yes. and, and fries Turkish delight for the wife. Yeah. Definitely. It's, it's not a show jacket, really. You know, it made me think about what he's going to do after he's done this show because he, he's not just mm. going to rely on his usual avuncularity and charm to have a good time tonight this is a jacket of someone who's going somewhere and has things to do yeah whether that's cleaning the streets of scum or um <laughs> i don't know picking up a couple of nine bars of hash from a contact in dover or whatever he's doing or standing by the side of a five-a-side pit shouting i reckon he's defo <laughs> he's got his car keys in there i reckon i, was, oh, yeah. I couldn't stop thinking about what he's got in his pockets um right. car keys Wallet, I think. I reckon he's probably got some PK Chuddy in there as well. Um, right. And perhaps a knuckle duster or a Chinese star as well. But it, 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 yeah, he's going places. Do you reckon he's got one of them key rings that bleeps when you whistle at it? <laughs> or is that a bit too early for 1984? That's a bit early. Yeah. That, that'd be later 80s. But yeah, he, he, he's got a busy night ahead of him, clearly. Mm. Uh, sadly, he appears to have teamed it with a dark green rugby shirt, which it makes it look like he's about to nip down to the pub that's down the road from the campsite. It's a, it's a very camping holiday <laughs> jacket, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, he won't feel the benefit when he goes outside. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it looks a bit flimsy, though, doesn't it? Ah, uh, yeah, but you see, it is a wind cheater. It cheats the wind. Right. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's got um, poppers on the wrists and at the top. So, you know, right. you, you make yourself into this kind of hermetically sealed... No poppers in the pocket, though. <laughs> no poppers. No, 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 yeah. no. Frankie goes to Hollywood, not that influential <laughs> yet. All right, press studs. You've got to be childish about it, Al. <laughs> His partner tonight is Janice Long, who is still currently a strictly weekend concern at Radio 1. She's presenting the request show Selector Disc on Friday afternoons, and on Saturday she'll be hosting her evening show live from the Solihull Conference and Banqueting Centre as part of Radio 1's all-day broadcast of their marathon music quiz. Wow. Oh, it, it runs from noon to midnight with, um, well... Guess who the team captains are? Radio 1 DJs. Hmm. Um, um, ooh, Gary Davis? No, he's commentating. Oh, right. Along with Steve Wright. Uh, Mike Reed? Of course. And uh, they'd have to choose somebody who actually knew about pop, I guess. Yes. Yeah, that eliminates most Radio 1 DJs of this period. Exactly. Um, Peel? No. Jensen? No. <laughs> Paul Gambaccino. Oh, yeah, you see. But she's biding her time waiting for Kid Jensen to defect to Capital Radio and ITV and become the first woman to present a weekday show on Radio 1 in September of this year. And yes, 
pop craze youngsters, this is why we're doing this episode. Yeah. We had to, man. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's pretty clear that after 63 episodes of chart music, when it comes to our favourite presenter, it's clearly been a straight fight between Kid Jensen and Janice Long, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd go along with that. And I think a lot of the time with Kid Jensen, it's just that he doesn't piss you off. Mm. Yeah. Mm. He just seems a a fairly kind of likeable guy. But with Janice, I mean, I think it's fair to say she's possibly the only Top of the Pops presenter who's universally liked by by all of us, uh, you know, actively liked by all of us at chart music. Yeah. Because even Peel, problematic in a sense you know even though we enjoy him on top of the pops there's aspects to peel that's problematic janice no she's just wonderful well janice is usually spoken about or often spoken about in relation to peel and she's often she's spoken of as a gateway drug a sort of um yes like an early learning version of john peel with with water wings and stabilizers Mm. but you know i i think that's to undervalue her and I think it's to overlook the qualities of, of her show in and of itself. Because, you know, truth be told, Janice Long was more my speed than John Peel was. Yeah. I, I was happier hearing, you know, soft alternative stuff by the likes of the Bunny Men and the Smiths and the Cure and, and Wah and Teardrop Explodes, or even like the lesser acts like It's Immaterial or Interfere on, on her show than I ever was tuning into Peel later on and hearing mm. sessions by the Three Johns or Swell Maps or, you know, um, Napalm Death or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I knew her. I knew Janice. I'm not going to pretend I knew her well, mm. but it started around 2013 when I kept running into her at things like judging panels for awards, um, which I, I was invited yeah. on to because of my column in The Independent on Sunday. And uh, right. and, and we, we bonded straight away. She seemed to figure out that I was more her sort of person than most of the industry bods in the room, if that's not flattering myself too much. And mm. she she had that kind of conspiratorial mischief about her that was yeah. really familiar from her TV present and her radio presenting, I think. Like, you know, there'd be a break in proceedings and she'd say, follow me, there's a kitchen over there with a stash of wine in it and we'd go off <laughs> and nick some wine. Uh. She invited me onto her show on Vintage TV um, along with Seymour Steen of Sire Records. Ooh. Yeah, the guy who signed the Ramones and Soft Cell, but also signed Madonna. And I, I was yeah. there on the show to slag off Madonna right in front of him, which was a <laughs> bit of a a bit of a stitch up on Janice's part, but I understood my my role as the baddie there. But um, <laughs> and then then she got me on her Radio Two show for this thing called the Spoken Word Sessions, uh, where I read out an extract of Lipstick Traces by Grill Marcus. Right, and and she asked me about my life and my career, and, and we played a few songs that I chose, including one by East India Youth, who was this brilliant electronic artist who had an EP out via the label that's run by the Quietest website. Right, and, uh, she was really positive about it. And that's the thing. Obviously, you know, a large part of my role as a critic is to be negative about things. Mm. Janice was a pure enthusiast. I could never be like that. But I'm glad that she was. Mm. And she was so kind and so helpful. And that's something that came across in all the tributes to her from musicians and media people. Um, yeah after she died and just that that thing i said about sort of co- conspiratorial mischief is something you know i i think i tweeted uh, when the news broke something to the effect that she always felt like she was sharing this best kept secret yeah. with you of yeah. of this band that she just discovered and loved and really wanted you to hear and she knew that you yes you would get it yeah. you know um and that's that was a, a really kind of special thing i think mm. uh, yeah i mean i i really liked her and e- even though i hadn't actually seen her for a few years i'll miss her 
Mm. I'll miss them massively. And, and, and you're right, Simon, the sort of universality of everyone's tributes to Janice after she passed. I, I think so many of us were genuinely properly upset by it. I know I yeah. was. People tend to over-egg it a bit when someone famous dies. But in this case, it, was, it seemed like a really genuine outpouring of regret. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. because of the age of pop and rock, it's inevitable that for many of us, the current period is a kind of time where on a weekly, even daily basis, we mm-hmm. learn of another pivotal figure that has passed. Yeah. yeah, And I think the reason, obviously, it hits so hard for a lot of us is because music is in our lives. You, you, you know, at the time that this episode comes out, for instance, 1984, I, I woke up thinking about music and spent all day thinking about music and all mm-hmm. night chasing it. It's part of our lives in a deeper way than anything else. And yeah. radio, of course, as I've said before, when talking about the Commodore's night shift, it's just the most magical way to make discoveries at this mm. time about music. Because MTV is just some expensive dream no one has. And at a time yeah. for me, you know, I'm 12, 13, I'm starting to listen later to radio well not just have pop on in the day but keep listening into the night and i i'm with pricey in, in as much as i was feeling sleepy by the time peel was on you know and, yeah. and janice yeah. was the voice really mm. for me and um she used that position where she could magically over the airwaves completely change the horizons of your life and your consciousness just with a, a track djs yeah. can do that unfortunately they've realized this and they play on it now i always think of zane lowe's hysterical overhype of things mm. that he played for yeah. instance but when you listen to janice it wasn't like being spoken to by a media persona it was a fellow mm. pop fan telling yeah. you about and playing you the music she was digging and in a world in which so many at Radio 1 and BBC 1 were seemingly using pop to further their own careers and only really saw fans and other people as kind of automata to be manipulated. Janice really shone out as just a fucking normal, lovely person. Yeah. I think Simon said it. She, she was a fan. Now, the word fan is, is much overused, I think, in pop talk and the pop business. Usually it's a mask for, for people who are actually exploiting those fans, whether it's football fans or music fans. But Janice yeah. always felt like a true fan, a genuinely open-eared listener. That was key. And also, we forget, when she did finally get the evening show, her evening show wasn't just music. She did interviews. Mm. She interviewed amazing people who would just, you know, rock up to, to her show. Like, I was listening to some interviews this week with Janice that she did on her evening show with Melly Mel and Mick Jagger and, and, mm. and loads of other people. And mm. I always found her really smart and intelligent in her interviews, even with people I didn't like. She was a master of getting the best out of people through the use of sort of genuinely open questioning and she was a good listener as well yeah it's often said that you know joe wiley say edith bowman have been inspired but but honestly there's a sicker fancy that the likes of wiley do this endless kowtowing to musicians yeah. and, and stuff and acceptance of the cliches they rotate about themselves i never got that with janice and crucially think about janice's story how she got this gig you know she's working on radio merseyside paul gambaccini comes up goes back to london and tells the controller to get in touch. And within two weeks, he's got a show. It's really nice to remember, especially in the current era, when in the, sorry, ghastly phrase, but creative industries, mm. you know, people have to jump through HR hoops or have yeah. enough social media traffic to be considered or have enough yeah. mates and parents in positions of influence to even dream of getting close to the national broadcaster or the mainstream media. That Janice was hired by Radio 1 two weeks, you know, before she started is nuts. But that is... 
I think me and Pricey probably feel that that reminds us of how we got hired in a sense in the media. Mm. Um, you know, a sudden mind blowing dream. And what happens then is when you're in that position, you make it your job to be better than everyone else in a way. You make it yeah. your job to be, do it as well as you can. And that's what mm. Janice did. No agenda to grind, just a real genuine fondness for pop music in all yeah. its myriad forms. She was funny and she was sharp and she was self-deprecating in a radio one that was was stuffed with colossal egos. I suppose people yes. would say her spirit is now in Radio 6, but I actually think, no, I think she actually found her home, curiously enough, at the tail end of her career back on BBC Wales. You know, supporting local scenes, playing yeah. sessions, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't just an advocate for indie rock. She was likable and kind of malleable enough that she could also, you know, deputise on daytime shows and still do really well. She was always a pop fan and not a snob. Mm. It's upsetting because when you lose someone like Janice, you start feeling that in the media sense, as a radio listener, you know, you start feeling outnumbered. You start feeling that what you're missing will have to be explained laboriously, whereas Janice required no explanation. You understood why she was good from the off. Mm. It's really saddening she's gone because such idiosyncratic people are not replaceable. And those claiming an influence like Wiley and Bowman just simply weren't as smart, as critical or as likeable as Janice. So, yeah, it really hit me in the heart, Janice going. Everything appears to be going really well at the minute for Janice, but it's been a difficult transition from local to national radio. I mean, she was extremely let down, apparently, when she, she moved down to London and expected Radio 1 to be the most amazing, mind-blowing work environment ever, Mm. and discovered that it was like working in an insurance company. (laughs) She's working for a corporation that employs hundreds of people, but she's only one of three women at Radio 1 at the moment who isn't a typist. Mm. Wow. She's clearly hankering for a weekday slot, and according to a book I read recently called The Story of Radio 1 by Robert Sellers, when she asked them why there hadn't been a woman on Radio 1 in the week, she was told because they're all at home doing the ironing (laughs) i I mean even when she arrived at radio one she was almost immediately told by someone that oh there was a woman at capital we really liked but she was fat so you were lucky there so yes but i mean pretty rapidly i mean she was obviously cognizant of this pretty rapidly as soon as she gets the chance she starts making documentaries about mm. women musicians and about women artists. So she, she yeah. I, I read a Smash Hits interview with Janice from 85, where this is pointed out, the kind of sexist parochialism of Radio 1. And she's realistic about it and says, this will mm. change. It has. Yeah. It has. Yeah. And, uh, and it needed pioneers like Janice, I think, to, to start knocking those doors down. Definitely. And as well as being the only woman on Radio 1 at the moment, she's one of the few provincial voices as well. And that's just as important. Absolutely massively important yeah you've you've got people who who you know the male presenters may be from stoke or manchester but you don't really hear that in their voices they talk in a bbc no, voice no, no. yeah janice is kind of unapologetically scouse you know uh, in in so many ways mm. hello and welcome to top of the box isn't it hot we've got some great stuff tonight duran duran and echo and the bunny man and what's more, we're live from Studio 6 of Television Centre, and to prove it, here's Sandy Shaw with the Smiths and Hand in Glove. The drums pound, the TV screen hovers, that voice goes, and the 
pink vinyl explodes to reveal Bates and Long, the former in that jacket, the latter in some kind of black shiny ball gown with exceptionally long opera gloves and extremely dyed red hair, standing at the corner of the balcony as the stark neon backdrop flares away. Janice opens by saying, isn't it hot? And we don't know if she's talking about Bates' new look or the weather. (laughs) After she selectively previews some of the acts on tonight, Bates barges in to tell us that once again, it's a live broadcast, immediately Mm. demonstrating that by not being able to say (laughs) television centre. He then points towards the stage and tells us that the first acts are going to prove just how live it is as Janice gives the thumbs up to Sandy Shaw and the Smiths with Hand in Glove. We've already covered Sandra Goodrich of Dagenham in chart music number 10 when she failed to get By Tomorrow into the charts in February of 1970. It was the beginning of a period of transition for Shaw, who announced her retirement from recording when her deal with Pi ran out in 1972. She would make sporadic appearances on shows such as assorted Top of the Pops anniversary shows, The Good Old Days, Music My Way, and most infamously on 2G's on the Pop People, where she reggae like it used to be. <laughs> Sandy, you are a liberated, uneducated woman. <laughs> that clip keeps disappearing, by the way, off YouTube. I don't know if it's back no, up. I'll, I'll put it back. Please, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> But she also played Ophelia and Joan of Arc on stage, co-wrote a musical with Herbie Flowers and Roger Cook from Blue Mink, set up a publishing company and session booking agency, and dabbled in writing and illustrating kids' books. In 1977, after shouldering the debts accumulated by her husband, she attempted a comeback when she signed to CBS, but the two singles released failed to chart and a serious illness nearly killed her. After getting back on track and finally paying off the debt, she got divorced, took a break from music and worked for a short time as a waitress in London. By 1982, she got married to Nick Powell, one of the co-founders of Virgin Records, who introduced her the year before to the British Electric Foundation, the production company formed by Martin Ware and Ian Marsh of the Human League and Heaven 17, who got her to cover anyone who had a heart a year later for the LP Music of Quality and Distinction. And after being invited to sing Girl Don't Come with Chrissy Hinder to Pretender's gig and putting out her first LP in 14 years, Choose Life, in March of 1983, she was back in the game. In August of that year, however, her husband, who was mates with Jeff Travis of Rough Trade, passed on a letter given to Travis by one of his bands. It read... <laughs> Dear Sunday. We could never begin to emphasise the endless joy we would feel if you would care to listen to our song with a view to possibly covering it. Obviously the song was written with you in mind. It is an absolute fact that your influence more than any other permeates all our music. Without doubt, we are incurable Sandy Shaw fans. 
studying all your material as we do day and night, we feel that your future musical direction must avoid the icky momism trap that most of your 60s contemporaries seized. You must surely realise that your name is sufficiently on the lips of young people to demand interest in new, vital products. We would be honoured to provide material for your consideration. The Sandy Shore legend cannot be over yet. There is more to be done. Love forever. Morrissey, wordsmith, voice. John E., multi-instrumentalist, composer. The Smiths. After a flood of letters from Morrissey and encouragement from Jeff Travis, she decided to meet him, only to be put off by a Sun article about the subject matter in Reel Around the Fountain and Suffer Little Children, and her concluding that she couldn't have a pervert in her house with her kids. (laughs) (laughs) After Travis convinced her that Morrissey wasn't a child murderer, they held a summit at Shaw's house, and a few guest appearances at Smith's gigs later, they decided to work together. After recording three tunes, this one, a cover of the Smiths' debut single, which came out in May of 1983 with a man's arse on the sleeve, (laughs) made it to number three in the independent chart and 124 in the proper chart, and was remixed for the Smiths' debut LP, which came out in February, was picked out as the designated single and put out a fortnight ago. Her follow-up to I Wish I Was, which came out in April of 1983 and failed to chart, and their follow-up to What Difference Does It Make, which got to number 12 in February of this year. It entered the charts last week at number 44, and this week it's nipped up eight places to number 36, reason enough to get her and 75% of the hottest new band in the nation into the studio for her first Top of the Pops appearance since the last week of 1973. Oh, chaps, this is the third time we've done the Smiths on chart music. and You know, we've never shied away from taking the opportunity to coat down Morrissey, but, you know, this is a good opportunity to remember that it wasn't always that way, was it? Absolutely. Although he's not in attendance here, that the shadow of Morrissey is looming large over this performance, and he is coming off as a very benevolent and extremely right on one, you know, letting a woman and, and an older woman like that take over his band for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, but, oh man, I'd love the Smiths so much more if Sandy Shaw was a singer. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's weird for me because I think I must have liked Morrissey at some point. Mm. Um, before going into this song, I, I was actually listening to a, a Morrissey interview on Janice Long's uh, evening show mm. uh, that was upon Mixcloud. I know there's this kind of acceptance now that M- Morrissey only grew intolerable in a way after the fame got to him. But mm. fuck me. He was always the most disgracefully self-important, arrogant cock and almost mm. parodic self-regard and self-importance that's so fucking punchable and loathsome. Mm. I, I, I came away from the interview just thinking this man's an uber cunt and always was. So right. seeing the Smiths shorn of his presence with Sandy, I think, looking amazing and yes. basically doing an amazing Moz impression, yes. um, I think it's a big improvement. Um, I know that's daft. I, I know Simon's gonna gonna rep for the Smiths, and he, he quite rightly should. But it's strangely shocking to see a th- she's thirty seven, isn't she? Yes. Um, when she gives a performance, it's strangely shocking to see a thirty seven year old woman give a performance like this. But I also like the more polished up Smiths. 
that it seems to bring out. Mm. Johnny Marr looks like Mark Allman. <laughs> yes, he um, does. He really <laughs> does. He's I got was this. Say that, you yeah. Sorry, but he's got this glittery kind of collar thing on. He looks yeah. great. So I'm mm. not saying they could have been a much better band. Of course, Morrissey's lyrics and his voice are hugely important to those those records. But Sandy has none of that snotty aloofness that Morrissey no. cultivated. So even though the sight of the kind of zoo wankers giving it the old Thatcherite oh, yes. stride behind them <laughs> is, stride is still a kind of jarring juxtaposition for a song that's essentially about misery and poverty, it starts feeling less jarring because Sandy just feels more generous. And she's a singer who doesn't have this kind of ultra-white, subsilla blanched wine for a voice uh, i find morris's voice difficult now i just want to punch it in the chest and sandy still has that touch of 60s r&b-ness to her voice yeah so that for me immediately transforms the song from one that's kind of closed in an elitist almost to something a bit more convivial i mean i immensely prefer it to the smith's ver- to the sorry the morrissey smith's version mm. i'd love it if they'd done a whole album of smith's covers yes. with her and i'd probably listen to it and hear the songs better better without yeah that twat distracting me so my, my hatred of Morrissey means that I, I prefer this apocryphal though that might be I, I prefer this to, to watching him Simon yeah first of all I just wanted to talk about the the intro because after that you know yeah it's it's the multicolored clay pigeon shooting one you know the yellow pearl the twop of the pork yes. and and um, <laughs> I, I noticed that Bates's caption comes up first you know like mm. who's this woman next to him you know the alpha male seniority must not be challenged you know and yeah Janice does look very fetish glam doesn't she in that black lacy frock with the elbow length black silk gloves and the um, diamante choker massive earrings and um, what I thought was ruler lenska hair Um, yes yes yeah it's a bit sillerish isn't it yeah yeah if you're a woman from Liverpool and you dye your hair red you've got to really think I guess so it can so easily tip over into siller I guess so and yeah we've already talked about what Bates looks like and Janice picks out a couple of bands whose names we won't spoiler, but she's absolutely beaming about one of them. Uh, and and yeah. yeah, Bates does his, but yeah, Bates butts in, he sort of tramples over her and goes, Oh, and what's more, we're live. Um, meaning, yeah. of course, that the show is not that the music is. Mm. So he is the one who gets to introduce the Smiths. Yeah. But Janice yeah. does a little finger jab of victory to let us know this is her music, not his. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I really noticed that little gesture. And the Smiths were my music as well. You know, I was yeah. Yeah. I was the Smiths fan who thought that only Morrissey understood me and only I understood mm. Morrissey. And, right. that, <laughs> and that he was communicating directly with me in my dead-end town. Um, they they took the place vacated by Dexys in my life, which we talked about before. He's the only one who really knew you at all. Oh, I like it, Alice. See what you've done there. That's amazing. Mm. <laughs> um, I'll be honest, I was a bit put off by the Smiths. Right. Something about them rubbed me up the wrong way. And I guess it was that arrogance that Neil was talking about. Yeah. But I think there, there came a point where I actually thought, no, I like that. I like a band telling me, forget everyone else. We're the only band who matter. Mm. And um, something clicked in 1984. I went into the legendary Spillers Records in Cardiff and I bought all their singles up to that point and their one album. And I absolutely learned them off by heart. I sort of, you know, taped them and blasted them out in the sixth form common room, um, defiantly earning the disapproval of um, all the lads who wanted to hear Dire Straits and Queen and stuff oh, like that. It was a real battle, you know. Um, mm, mm, and yeah. another thing I bought in Spillers that day was a ticket 
to the Smith Show in Cardiff University. Fucking hell, you went all in. I went Simon. all in, yeah. Um, <laughs> 25th September, which was my 17th birthday, which was just amazing that Smiths were playing Cardiff on my birthday. And it's still yeah. one of the most vivid gig experiences of my life. I remember that there were a few of us from Barry went in to see it, and um, obviously we knew that what you were meant to do at a Smiths gig was bring flowers with you. Mm. Uh uh, but I couldn't afford to go to a florist. So what we did when we <laughs> arrived at um, Katay Station in Cardiff, which is the nearest one to the uni, there were various kind of, um, I think they were rubber tyres, like tractor tyres that had been turned inside out to make them into yeah. plant pots uh, full of uh, petunias and stuff like that. And, and we just grabbed them and nicked them. So we had some... Oh, <laughs> I know, it's terrible. <laughs> Your teenage years are just a litany of flower Flower handles, destruction, yeah. Crime spree. Um, so yeah, I went in there with these raggedy, diesel-encrusted stolen flowers. <laughs> I really remember going... Well, first of all, I took the time on the ticket, literally. So it said 7 o'clock. And I thought, fucking hell, mm. got to get those 7 o'clock the smiths are going to be on and then of course you get there and there was god i think it might have been cactus world news or maybe it was james it was james actually that's who it was right um but even before james came on you had to wait for fucking ever while the student dj played these interminable dub reggae 12s you know uh oh morrissey would have loved that uh, yeah (laughs) i mean i i was blinkered enough at the time that i did not want to hear that either you know and um did you say it was vile simon i i didn't say it was vile just no no don't put words in my mouth uh especially not especially not morrissey's words uh no but i i found it a little bit dull and uh i just i I just want to see morrissey in the flesh now anyway i remember queuing up at the bar and that there were just spilt it's a student venue there was spilt beer spilt lager everywhere Mm. what seemed to be like an inch deep on the floor i'm probably exaggerating but i'll never forget standing there looking at the floor all this lager and there were petals floating in the lager and that just seemed so symbolic (laughs) Mm -hmm. of what was about to happen and then when the smiths finally come on there are a lot of students who are probably just there to take the piss Mm. and and to sort of troll this this band who thought they were all that and a bag of chips you know so somebody during the first song the first song was william is really nothing and somebody threw a can of Heineken at Morrissey's head. And I remember it hit him. And I can just almost remember in slow motion, the foam from the Heineken going all over his head. And he just sort of defiantly ran his fingers through his quiff and just carried on. And I thought, (laughs) you are cool as fuck. If it (laughs) was now and someone did that, he'd just go off in a huff. Uh, And Mm. there there have been examples of that where he just, he's, you know, um, thrown his toys out of the pram or taken his ball home or whatever metaphor you want to use. But yeah, just just a a huge experience for me seeing the Smiths. I I actually got a small piece of the fir tree that he swung around his head during the game, which is like a holy relic to me, you know, like a a splinter from Christ's cross. Yes, exactly. And the thing with the Smiths was, and I mean, I'm not going to go on about what they meant to me too much because I've written about this loads. There was an article for The Quietus I did about the Queen is dead. So I'll keep it Mm. fairly brief. I'll just urge people to read that so I don't go on and on about it. I'll just go the one on about it. Um, The Smiths were pure. They were pure. Um, Everyone else with their fucking ripped knees and their drugs, they were slags. All the other bands were slags. Um, And the Smiths had this purity to them 
They were rejecting all that. They were rejecting mm. rock and roll masculinity. That right. this outright rejection of masculinity was crucial to me. And in a way, that is exemplified by Morrissey stepping aside and having a female singer mm. come on this record and just um, taking over yeah. for one record. A lot of what appealed to me about them was, I guess, borderline incel right mm. they made me feel validated for my romantic failures mm. when i was walking home alone from a teenage house party under that sodium orange glow of the street lights used to get in those days while everyone else was getting off with each other to move closer <laughs> by phyllis nelson <laughs> it was Man. them who were wrong and me who was right because morrissey said so or when i was being betrayed by the treacherous steph Whoa. for example so Shaking yeah i mean this now simon yeah yeah so i took my wages from my job as a seafood seller at Butlins, where I met the treacherous Steph, and I literally invested in this band, and this was one of the singles I bought. Oh, prawn is murder, Simon. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I was a vegetarian at the time, yes. so I I got the worth of both worlds. I couldn't even <laughs> eat the fucking food, but I stank of it. Um, I love that, Simon. I love the fact that it's so true that pop can sometimes be that that justification for that enforced celibacy yes. <laughs> i mean the reasons for it but 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 yeah pop can provide that validation and justification of it in a way it makes it righteous it does and morrissey was my absolute hero for that um, among other reasons and mm. i mean of course what makes this clip magical and so so watchable is that we don't have to look at the cunt, mm. you know, mm. because now that he is Pop's biggest racist who thinks that the Chinese are a subspecies, and I could give you a whole fucking list, but we all know yeah. what we're talking about. Yes, we do. I mean, it is problematic for me to even listen to the Smiths now. I need a few stiff drinks yeah. before I can stick on a Smiths album. Sometimes I do, you know, sometimes I've got friends round or whatever, or the wife and I are having a bit of a sesh, uh, we'll stick the Smiths on, but I, I can't listen to them sober just because I've got to get past that revulsion that mm. i feel mm. towards what yeah. what he's become now put gary glitter and michael jackson on instead <laughs> in some ways those two are easier to listen to they are because yeah. I, I, know. I didn't buy into their persona they were just the front men exactly. of brilliant pop records but morrissey it was all about him and what he stood for yes and when we find out that what he stands for is actually something completely um appalling and beyond the pale um then listening to him now, even though you can think, well, at the time, as Neil says, maybe he wasn't like that or as much like that as he later became, it's still his voice. And mm. I'm listening mm. to these songs, but, and I maintain, I maintain the Smiths are the greatest rock and roll band who ever lived. Mm. Um, but to listen to them now and to hear that voice makes it really difficult for me. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And I think they were the greatest rock and roll band of all time, not just because of the music you know obviously Johnny Marr was completely brilliant and they were literally a rock and roll band on stuff like Rush Home Ruffians or Shakespeare's Sister the kind of rockabilly moments mm. but they were rock and roll in the sense that probably the most rock and roll thing you could be was to overturn the cliches and, ex and accepted modes of behavior yeah. of rock and roll which is what they did they were the most revolutionary and rebellious band mm. you could be in 1984 i think mm. so hearing what to me are some of the greatest albums of all time and by the way for me it's me is murder over the queen is dead right. queen is dead is a seven out of ten album seven good songs three comedy ones mm. i mean mixed feelings to say the least about the band who meant more to me probably than any band ever did before or did since because mm. they caught me at just the right age 
And uh, yeah, but but I've, I've got to be honest with myself. I don't want to be one of those people who cling on for dear life. And mm. you know, the real dregs now of Morrissey's fan base who just cannot let go. Yeah. Um, and I get it. I get how difficult it is. I, I think a, a lot of us were in denial up to a point, but there comes a point you just got to fucking face up to it. Yeah. And anyone can say, yeah, separate the art from the artist. Yeah, we've all heard that a million times. Mm. And um, it's never particularly uh, on chart music. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, th- I think we've talked about this before, that it's never a simple, easy cut-off. You will have anomalies within your own kind of decision that you make on that. Yeah. Mm. There will be people who have done worse things, but you find their work easy to listen to, and it's yeah. it's patchy and it's messy. Um, but for me, the Smiths are really quite a problem, and I have to get shit-faced to really enjoy them. <laughs> it's because you feel betrayed by him. Yeah. Totally. Total betrayal, which only a fan can feel. Mm. I really was taken by what Simon said about them being the greatest rock and roll band because it reminds me of, um, I think Simon Reynolds made this comparison as well between the Stones, who are traditionally called, you know, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, and the Smiths. They are similar in a way in that they reflect their time. Mm. Absolutely. But the thing is with the Smiths, as well as reflecting their time, they crucially reject their time as well. And, and, Mm. you know, uh, set against the aspirational 80s, the Smiths are definitively rejecting of that era and positing something completely different. So I, I kind of go along with what Simon says about them, you know, at the time being that greatest rock and roll band in terms of summing up both the spirit and also the kind of dissident spirit of the age. Absolutely. But incredibly difficult, as Simon said, to listen to anymore. Yeah. And and he's right. Because like, you know, I listen to Led Zeppelin. And when I think about what Jimmy Page has done in, say, comparison to Morrissey, I know which one is more morally heinous but morrissey sails on kind of smugly being even more morrissey-ish all the time and his fans just cling on i don't want to offer condolences or anything but that must be tremendously upsetting simon not to be able to hear something like that because it is a true betrayal i mean it's a band who once stood up for the downtrodden and for the underdog and for the outsider Mm. and their lead singer now being absolutely on the side of the oppressors and punching down, and it's horrible to see. Mm. But anyway, he's Cunt's not on this episode. Sandy he's not Shaw on this. Is, let's talk Sandy about Shaw. her. <laughs> right, Sandy Shaw punched me in the stomach once. Wow! No, in the Houses of Parliament. But I'll come on to that <laughs> in a second. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to leave that hanging. Um, first of all, I want to talk about um, her age because because you mentioned yes. that you know she was 37. Mm-hmm. She was born uh, in February 1947. People who are 37 now, right? Yeah. Obviously, I'm doing that kind of calendar maths, mm. right? People who are 37 now include Mutia from the Sugar Babes, mm. Nadine and Nicola from Girls Aloud, Bruno Mars and Carly Rae Jepsen, right? right? So these are all people mm-hmm. who do not feel like old people. No. But, mm. you know, the, the exchange rate has changed, yes, really, with, with age. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, obviously yeah. you are younger, longer these days. Um, but when she was, when Sa- Sandy Shaw was on top of the pops with the Smiths, I was 16, she was 37. I'm thinking, calm down, mum. Yes. Uh, I, fa- I, <laughs> yeah. I was embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I, and I, I feel awful saying that now. Yeah. My, my mum was born in 1947, so Sandy Shaw's literally the same age as my mum. Yes. So to see her there, like, um, romping about, I, I was, I was cringing. <laughs> I mean, we, we're now as far from this episode of Top of the Pops as she was from her birth. Mm. So, yeah, things have changed a lot. It would be the equivalent now, I mean, because this was 16 years after her peak, shall we say, Mm. her peak being, you know, I guess the late 60s. But 
16 years of that time felt like 100 years ago. Um, but it would actually be the equivalent yeah. now of, let's say, Fontaine's DC working with Leona Lewis or, or Wet Leg working with Nelly Furtado, you know, which would be a, a little bit jarring, but it doesn't seem like a million years ago. Mm. And watching it now... She looks great and she's she's awesome. Yes. She's got this belted black leather dress with a, a thigh length split in it and mm-hmm. the leopard print tights. Yes. Black stiletto shoes. Shoes. Yes. Sell out, Sandy. Sell out. Yeah. Wearing shoes. But did you notice <laughs> that the Smiths were barefoot? Ah, you see. Yeah, yeah I see what they did there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's rolling around on the floor. And yeah, I, I, I was embarrassed at the time. But it's brilliant. It's like fucking Iggy Pop or something. It's just, mm. it's really quite punk what she's doing there. Mm. And her voice uh, is... Well, the thing with Sandy Shaw's voice to begin with is she wasn't... I, I, I was surprised you, you said that there was a kind of R&B um, timbre. Just a little touch. Yeah. She's not She's not like Dusty or no, anything like not. that. No, she's not. Yeah, right, right. But just a little touch I detected that just took it away from kind of Morris's whininess, basically. Mm. The thing that she has in her voice that I really treasure is a kind of insouciance and nonchalance. and She's kind of offhand. Um, she, mm. She's mm. not really belting it out she, she's not really delivering the lines in capital letters she's almost throwing them away and and that's in her own work as well as in this smith's cover mm. and her voice is a kind of semitone flat which is a, like it's slightly sullen mm. it reminds me actually a little bit of Susie sue uh with whom morrissey would of course later collaborate and Susie Sue yeah. thinks Morrissey's a cunt as well, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, I think it's a really good version. First of all, musically, it's very different from the the two original Smiths versions, the single and the album. Because the thing with the original, it's got harmonica all over it, and and right. I, for mm. me, the harmonica is an undignified instrument. It <laughs> it, it lacks dignity, and and it's just blasting away like it's a fucking sixties Bob Dylan record or something. I don't like it. I don't like. It. Mm-hmm. But this version. The intro is this very sort of light, tinkly guitar sound from Johnny Marr. Mm. And I think it works really well. I mean, it's funny you talk about the insolness of Smith songs, because this is, oh, you know, this is us. We're um, we're gay. We're going out. And if the people stare, let the people stare. It's you know, it's, it's quite up front for 1984. Yeah, exactly. She changes the lyrics. Mm. The original goes, uh, so the good life is out there somewhere, so stay on my arm, you little charmer. She sings, so I'll stay on your arm because you are charming. Mm. Half the time, Morrissey is singing about how he can't get along with women and, uh, you know, he can't find love and love is trivial and useless and worthless anyway and then the rest of the time he's singing either very sexually as he is actually on the b-side of the original uh uh, uh hand in glove which is handsome devil which is a, v- a very sexual lyric but mm. he also sings about this kind of idealized version of romance which is what he finds on hand in glove that it's really uh you and me against the world yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's it's them taking on the world it's you know um the sun shines out of our behinds it's not like any other the love this one's different because it's us which i think is is just a brilliant lyric and it's a really nice counterpoint to long live love which is a fucking brilliant song yeah. i love that yeah it, it is. is one of the greatest i'm getting some singles <laughs> ever her performance of that on top of the pops right long live love um have you seen it i've seen one of them she's barely moving her lips and she looks she's really not asked about it and it really undermines the song yeah. in a mm. wonderful way you know she's singing Long live love, blah, blah, blah. But mm. the way she delivers it makes it seem sarcastic. 
music and it sort of really puts a different meaning on the song for me and um, when I met her and this is where she punched me in the stomach <laughs> Right. Um, So what it was, Mm. it was the uh, it was an an event for the 50th anniversary. I think it was the 50th of Mm. the charts. Right. And it was held in the House of Parliament in this meeting room. (laughs) There are various people there, including Mike Reed, Mike Reed, 275 and 285. And um, and, R-E-A-D. Yes, exactly. Uh, I I think the uh, uh, H-O-P security had to turn her away. Um, There was one of of the ladies from Boney Air who I had a nice chat with. Um, did you did you smell his breath, Simon? It was beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually sort of did stand quite close, and I just wanted to check out his breath. But um, but, <laughs> San- but Sandy Shaw was there, and uh, I didn't used to get autographs for my mum very often. Because, uh, you know, I don't think she was that bothered. But there were two that I did get for her that she was really bothered about. One of them was Martin Kemp from Spandau Ballet, um, oh, because yeah. she fancied him off EastEnders, right? <laughs> and the other was Sandy Shaw, because as I say, she was born the same time as Sandy Shaw, and she sort of grew up yeah. in that era, and she just loved Sandy Shaw. So I, I got Sandy to sign, like, the fucking event program mm. f- for, for my mum. She was really delighted by that. And we got talking, and I asked her about this performance of uh long live love i uh-huh. said oh that's so great how you did that and she said no that's not what happened what happened was this the footage that you see now on top uh, saw on top of the pops it was only meant to be a rehearsal right she was just sort of making sure she was on the right spot for the lighting and the cameras and yes. all that and what it was she wouldn't do the actual proper record of the show because of jingle nonce Jimmy Savile, because he was creeping her out so much in the backstage area that she walked out. Fucking hell. So this clip already put a different meaning on the song for me. Now it's got this third meaning of why she's really doing that. Right. And there was lots of white wine flowing at this event, and she was a really Mm. good laugh, like quite kind of bonkers, to use a sort of very Radio 1 word. Um, Mm. Quite sort of scatty and sort of, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah random i suppose um yeah but but great really just really likable anyway that sort of drinks reception was held in this little side room but the toilets were elsewhere in the building and i remember i went off to go to the loo when i came back she was heading the other way across the main kind of assembly room that we'd been in she was walking towards me she's like hey all right and she whacks me in the stomach <laughs> in what was meant to be a jovial way but it really hurt it really, Fuck. she's 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 stronger than she looks but yeah this is a fucking brilliant performance and you know to my mind this is the definitive version of the song i listened to the smiths doing yeah. In glove and it sounds like a cover version of sandy shaw yeah absolutely the, uh, what simon was saying about her voice having that nonchalance to it is really important to why this works mm. i think because the smiths to me i mean i'm sure i'm just being ignorant but they've never sounded better yes. than glistening yes. and gliding this is beautiful and the way her the weakness of her voice when she leaves those kind of notes hanging and just lets johnny Marr do something special and delightful it's mm. wonderful obviously morrissey and the Smiths are amazing, amazing songwriters um, who perhaps should have been covered a bit more by Sandy because I think she does an amazing job. Yeah, they could have got an yeah. album out of this, couldn't they? Perhaps. I mean, perhaps it, it's nice that it's just this because it keeps it special. But 
Mm. Yeah, I really love this. And like I say, I do think she looks great, unlike what I would have thought when I was 16. Oh, God, I totally fancy <laughs> And um, And uh, Johnny Marr looks great as well. You know, you say he looked like uh, Mark Almond. Mm. Yeah, he's got this, he's got the black polar neck with a diamante necklace around it, which I thought was a bit like Janice's mm. Joker, actually. It was a very diamante year, 1984. Oh. I wore a lot of diamante myself that time, you know, because yeah. it was cheap. But he's got his hair in that right. sort of backcombed mod do that's mostly swept back towards the crown but leaves generous fringe at the front at the time Mm. though at the time i preferred andy rourke's hair because he had that immaculate 80s indie boy hairdo it's like um, a flat top that's Mm. grown out a little bit and it's been quaffed by a pro you know and and i even like how mike joyce looks here not so much for his look fashion wise or hair wise but just for how he is he's sitting upright with his drums sensibly horizontal like he's doing a job like he's a jobbing drummer in a jazz band and his drums aren't set up in that ergonomic way that heavy metal drummers have where all the skins are tilted inwards to you know facilitate a big show-off drum roll yeah they're just there nice and flat just tiny details like that felt defiant to me at Mm. the time and and it's good that all the idiots the zoo wankers presumably in their hooped tops lots of hoops going on like sailor hoops it's good that they're there dancing Mm. on the platform behind them and it's good that there's the balloons and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah, and it's good you've got these twats in their crop tops and their espadrilles and their sailor hats because it provides that contrast and it gave me that feeling just like when janice does her little finger jab this is for me this is my music yeah yeah and we've broken through for two minutes, 20 seconds or whatever, we have broken through. Mm. City Farm in full effect. You know, they're towering over the band in the background, being totally unable to dance to the single and generally looking like an animatronic window display <laughs> for a very big top shop, possibly in Oxford Street. <laughs> I wonder if this started a kind of trend, because obviously this is out in 84. You've got, um, what did I do to deserve this in 87 with Pet Shop yes. Boys? And you've got Art of Noise and Tom Jones you know kiss in 88 i don't want to talk about that record well it was started by b yeah 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 i'm, I'm glad you pointed yeah. that out actually al yeah that mm. it was heaven 17 yeah and of course yeah they they sort of resurrected mm. tina turner mm. and yeah, all that yeah, kind yeah, of thing of as well yeah um, yeah, I think those albums are really important, the two Definitely. Um, BEF albums. Yeah, it's a win-win situation for uh, for both parties, isn't it, this? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Great start to the show as well. So the following week, Hand in Glove rose nine places to number 27, but dropped four places to 31 the following week and exited the chart. Although the two entities never collaborated on vinyl again, Shaw, Morrissey and Marr remained tight apart from the Morrissey and Marr bit, obviously. (laughs) The Smiths followed up with Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, which, of course, was inspired by Shaw's 1969 single Heaven Knows I'm Missing Him Now, which got to number 10 for two weeks in June of this year, while Shaw went off to appear at various major charity gigs and eventually got round to record the LP Hello Angel, named after Morrissey's regular salutations to her in his many letters in 1980 which featured the single Please Help in the Cause Against Loneliness, which was written by Morrissey and Stephen Street. She retired from recording in 1989 with the single Nothing Less Than Brilliant, which initially failed to chart, but then got to number 66 in November of 1994 when it was put out alongside her compilation album. It featured Chrissy Hind on harmonica and on castanets, Janice Long. Oh. Wow. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sandy Shaw, Smith, some handling gloves. Some great movie teams around at the moment. Footloose is coming up the chance. And here's Phil Collins, number one in America. Here he's number two with the theme from Against All Odds. We cut back to Bates, and it's blatantly obvious that the new look is paying off, as two young ladies have been asked by the floor manager to voice their attentions upon him, one even draping herself upon his shoulder. Yeah. She doesn't look that interested. Mm. She's looking away. She's not comfortable. Well, that's it. I mean, she she's a very pretty girl, and she's hanging off Bates' shoulder. Presumably, mm. I mean, I presumed without any coercion, but, you know, uh, you've, you've now put the doubt in my mind that maybe she was told to do it. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. mean, it it takes all sorts, I suppose. Yeah. But she does do an amazing eye roll towards the end. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> like the professional he is, Bates gets on with the task of introducing the next act. Phil Collins with Against All Odds. Take a look at me now. Born in Putney in 1951, Phil Collins was a child actor who received his first drum kit as a Christmas present at the age of five, made his singing debut at the age of seven at a talent show in Butlins, where he sang the ballad of Davy Crockett and stopped the band halfway through, telling them they were playing in the wrong key. He then formed a school band called The Real Thing at the age of 11, started playing piano at the age of 12, was an extra in A Hard Day's Night at the age of 13, and played the Artful Dodger in two runs of the musical Oliver, also at the age of 13. Sadly, his balls dropped halfway through the second run, meaning he had to shout his vocals and was eventually removed from the cast. After honing his drumming skills and practically living in assorted London clubs throughout the late 60s, he started casting about for a band, and after failing the auditions for Vinegar Joe and Manfred Mann Part 3, was invited by John Anderson to audition for Yes, but he didn't bother. In July of 1970, he answered an advert in Melody Maker and was drafted in as the fifth drummer of Genesis, who had just finished their second LP and were on the verge of splitting up, occasionally singing lead on the odd album track in a Ringo style and fashion. In 1975, when Peter Gabriel went solo, the band put another ad in the maker looking for a replacement, with Collins singing backup during the lengthy audition process. And when they couldn't find anyone suitable, installed him as the new front person, kicking off a transition period which eventually slimmed the band down to a three-piece, stared them away from progginess towards a more radio-friendly style, and reaped five top ten singles throughout the Avent and finally put the band over in America. 
1978, on the verge of the announcement of a nine-month world tour, his missus told him that she was well dischuffed about her husband not being about, and if he went on the tour, she would not be there when he got back. And when he finally did, she already had. At the same time, Genesis were on an extended break so Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford could work on their solo albums, so Collins decided to have a go at one of his own, signing a deal with Virgin and rattling out a string of songs about divorce and the like. (laughs) That LP... Face Value, eventually came out in February of 1981 and the lead-off single, In the Air Tonight, immediately shot up the charts, getting to number two that month. And a year later, his cover of You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes went one better, ascending to the summit of Pop Mountain, pushing off Rene and Renato and staying there for two weeks. He spent the rest of 1983 working on the Genesis LP, Genesis, and during the tour for that album was passing through Chicago when he was approached by the film director Taylor Hackford and asked to participate in the soundtrack for his forthcoming film, Against All Odds. He immediately rummaged through his bag of musical offcuts and pulled out a tune called How Can You Just Sit There, which was composed during his post-divorce songwriting blitz five years previously and deemed not good enough for his first two LPs. As time was pressing and Genesis was still on tour, Arif Mardin was drafted in to co-produce, the piano, bass and strings were recorded in New York, and Collins bolted on drums and vocals the following week in Los Angeles. This single is the follow-up to Why Can't It Wait Till Morning, which only got to number 89 in May of 1983. It entered the charts at number 26 three weeks ago that soared 16 places to number 10. And this week it's up two places from number four to number two. And here is the BBC running a big advert for the film. <laughs> Boys, Songs for Move is a huge deal in 1984. Yeah. I mean, the best original song nominees that year for the Oscars go as follows. I Just Called to Say I Love You, Stevie Wonder. Footloose, Kenny Loggins. Let's hear it for the boy, Denise Williams. Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. And this. Yeah, in a lot of those cases, the song was bigger than the film. And that that's mm. definitely the case with this one. You know, the, oh, yes. the song was much more successful than the film was. I've not seen the, the film Against All Odds, but just from the glimpses... Because why would you? I know. I, I Yeah, if I had limited pocket money, I was going to spend it all on Smith's records rather than this kind of thing. The film looks pretty bog-standard mid-80s fair, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, action-packed American things like, like driving fast cars recklessly or playing sports that yes. we don't play here or um, punching snake-eyed men in suits played by James Mm. Woods. Um, Or, you know, if it was the 90s, it would have been James Spader. Isn't it interesting how James Woods seamlessly handed over that kind of typecast role to James Spader, that kind of, that piggy-eyed coldness of the kind of corporate baddie. Um, (laughs) But yeah, um, the film's got um, Jeff Bridges and Rachel Ward, uh, both of whom have been in one of my all-time favourite films each. Bridges in The Big Lebowski and Ward in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is slightly problematic in certain ways now, like the bit where Steve Martin basically feels her up while she's unconscious and then justifies Mm. it by saying, your breasts are out of whack when she wakes up, but um, made up for by the moment where she sucks a bullet out of a hole in his arm, which is uh, really quite... 
quite startling. Um, but yeah, um, in, in this film, they're, they're basically... Um, um, yeah, let me help you out here, Simon. I think the word you're looking for is cat shit. <laughs> you know, this is the sort of thing that would be a TV movie on ITV at the same time as Top of the Pops. Yeah. And your dad would watch it so you couldn't watch Top of the Pops. And he knows it's going to be shit, but he still watches it all the way through while it's being shit. And then at the end he'll say, oh, that was fucking rumble. It looks fucking rubbish. I mean, yeah. this is the thing, you know, a lot of... Uh, pop videos as trailers this year as, as you put it out there are with that list of Oscar nominees but imagine being dragged to see against all odds fucking hell yeah all, all we get from this trailer what as Simon said a ton of inexplicable American sports action and and something which I would have been interested in it's like, uh, oh American football oh, yeah God. yeah yeah but there's there's also this motif um it, it reminded me of my mum because there were two things my mum hated massively on telly. One of them, which I might have mentioned before, is uh, actresses who show their teeth when they smile. So their rest face. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, she hated that, no. she hated Sue Ellen and Pam Ewing for that reason. But so right. there's a bit of that. But but also, you know that thing in films where people have just woken up and they start snogging. Yeah. My mum, whenever that happened, she'd always be like, "Oh God, their breath must stink." Yeah. That's gross. <laughs> she'd be right. She'd be She's absolutely brilliant. right. Yeah. So there's a lot of morning breath kind of beardy snogging here. Oh yeah. And yeah, this song is a total ball ache that seems to go on for weeks. Really drags. Not helped by this video because the literal translation of the lyrics is so forced from the off you know mm. you get the line about turning around they find a clip of someone turning around yes you get the line empty space they show some empty space the <laughs> trademark phil collins drum roll which was obviously had to be in there because yeah. it was such a, such a success <laughs> yeah. in uh, in the air tonight i mean yeah. it's basically the dairy milk gorilla the dairy milk gorilla <laughs> bit in it yeah, yeah yeah exactly it's become his trademark like fucking big daddy's belly buster or whatever that, that, <laughs> that, uh, you know his drum roll comes in and they show a bit where somebody's thrown into a drum kit you know um, and throughout this video when it was on in 84 i would have walked out of the room having to watch it for chart music purposes it reminded me of other videos in a sense where i'd like to be in the video and yeah. give the person in it a really hard shove a really hard push <laughs> like i always thought that when I, you know john bon jovi's video for a blaze of glory yes. you probably blotted it out of your memories but it's shot in the canyons of utah yes. i always used to dream about running up and just giving him a shove and this is <laughs> this is one of those throughout it you know he's got that water coming down behind him and in yeah. front of him and he somehow magically manages to stay pretty much dry i really just wanted to give him a fucking push into that water because <laughs> this song was winding me up so much i thought that the rain it, the water looked like red rain perhaps in a foreshadowing of peter gabriel's dire warning of world destruction <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe gabriel nicked the idea off him phil collins has got this really shit jacket on hasn't he he looks awful man yeah he's rich he shouldn't look this shit and, and yeah. Flashdance has already done this trick of making a video, you know, a movie trailer. And as the decade mm. goes on, we get more. We get Billy Ocean and others doing this kind of thing. Yeah. So a part of pot really becomes this feeder for the movie industry. Cross-platform yeah. brand synergization. This is yeah. it. And getting at least one pop hit on the soundtrack is guaranteed to get bums on seats. I expect... Mm. Not many people went to see this film, but I expect 90% of the people who did go and see this pile of dog shit went because of this song. Yeah, but if, um, you, if you want to listen to the song, you buy the record and play it. Yeah. You know, yeah. instead of sitting through a film for an hour and a half. And yeah. Apparently it's at the very end of the fucking film. It is. So you have got to sit yeah. through the whole thing. Yeah. 
And the song, it really does seem to go on for like a fucking week or something. And that's a week that basically you're spending in the company of a guy whose wife has walked out on him. And by the sounds of it, for good reason, because he's a whiny little fuck. (laughs) It's not a pop song. It's a middle-aged divorce song, you know? It's a decent trade-off for all concerned, the movie soundtrack game. Because, you know, the film gets to glom itself onto a pop star and then thus promote itself on MTV and Top of the Pops. The label that's handling the soundtrack album sometimes gets to nick an artist from elsewhere for a bit. The artist gets half the video made for him. You know, the only Mm -hmm, losers Mm -hmm. in this case are as poor twats the term as we have to sit through an advert for what appears to be a really shit film that says nothing to us about our lives if you're going through a breakup right you want the dignity of i don't know as wads don't turn around or you just might see me cry by our kid <laughs> yeah this is like i'm not going to let you leave with my dignity intact here i am being yeah. the pathetic blubbery mess that you left mm. i would n- in no way like to suggest that the mariah carey fucking boy zone or whatever it's westlife when it version is better But at least there you get some sense of release. Here, Phil just remains this kind of pent-up, unlovable guy, which perhaps Mm. makes it a more interesting record. To be honest, look, this is a great, well-executed example of perhaps one of my least favourite types of music, the power ballad, Um, you know, which seems to have been rehabilitated. But people forget most of them are fucking awful. So, I mean, we start off with a terrifying bit of CGI. Oh, God. What yeah. the fuck is going on there? Which, in this case, stands for crappy graphics, isn't it? <laughs> of an Aztec mask. Like a, no, it's oh, Mayan. It's, it's Mayan, Al. An Aztec mask with no. Bill Collins' as No, mouth. get it right, Al. It's not Aztec. It's Mayan. Is it Mayan? It's oh, Mayan. Yeah, yeah. Get it right. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I apologise to the pop-crazed Peruvians. <laughs> then it's just shots of Jeff Bridges snogging the woman he's supposed to be finding for James Woods in between Collins singing in his bad 80s jacket and doing some doing some Hadley fisting on a neon triangle, which is, you know, supposed to be symbolic, but it looks like he's just standing on a Bronski beat logo. Yeah, that bit where his mouth is superimposed onto that Mayan mask. It reminds me of, I don't know if, you've, if you remember this, you've seen it, that song that became a bit of a meme in the noughties called What What in the Butt by Samwell. Right. <laughs> It's, and we've basically got this sort of chocolate starfish ring piece with a mouth talking in the middle of it. It's, it's basically like that. It's, it's really quite disturbing. It's also disturbing the way that Collins's real mouth goes when he does the first ooh in the song. He just does something weird with his lips that kind of creeps me out a bit. Yeah. The, oh, by the way, the, the story with why, because Neil mentioned uh, the literalness of, of the lyrics, mm. he sort of crowbarred yeah. in. What happened there was that he had this song lying around already. Yes. Because it was written at the same time as In the Air Tonight. Mm. Uh, it was when his, his wife, Andy, was cuckolding him with a painter and decorator, hence the, you know, the paint pot on top of his keyboard uh, when he was performing on top of the pots back in those days. Wow. Um, so he had this song just uh, knocking around. As, uh, it was just meant to be a B-side, I think, at first. It was just a demo. He had a demo of it, and it was originally called How Can You Just Sit There? Mm. And then Taylor Hackford approached him while he was on tour in America and said, look, I'm making this film. Can you write something for it? And and he said, well, no, I can't write when I'm on tour. He just couldn't do that. Mm. But I have got this other song hanging around. Yeah. And he played him a tape of it. And... Um, yeah, um, Hackford insisted that he incorporated the exact title mm. into the lyrics. So it does feel crowbarred in. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, he, he sort of like nipped off to studio in New York with Arif Mardin. And- yeah, th- thank God he wasn't making King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, Romancing the Stone, you know. You coming back to me is Romancing the Stone or something. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I actually, I, I got Phil Collins' autobiography, Not Dead Yet, for Christmas. Nice. Uh, it's it's the book the Daily Mirror called Draw Droppingly Honest. Um, uh, my 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 brother Kev got it for me. Um, it was on my wish list, but I can't remember putting it there. I must have been pissed. <laughs> I absolutely must have been pissed when I put it on there. But I was glad to get it. Thank you, Kev. I think he listens. Um, hey, Kev. One reason I wanted to read it is that my mother-in-law used to go out with Phil Collins. Wow. Ooh. When they were teenagers. Ooh. Fucking hell. Revelation and I wanted... top revelation, Simon. I know. <laughs> I wanted to see, obviously, if she gets a mention, yeah. right? Because that would be hilarious to me. Um, yes. She doesn't, sadly. But in a way, oh. it's not surprising that he couldn't pick her out of the fog of his memory because, according to his own account, he squired his way through the entire student body oh, at drama school. Know? Squired, his words, squired. Mm. So um, the first time he squired anyone, uh, is he says uh, <laughs> he lost his virginity in an allotment with a mod girl, um, who was called Cheryl, so it's not... Well, that's, you know, the, the name he gives her. That's uh, not my mother-in-law. Um, surrounded by potatoes and carrots. And being surrounded by nice. potatoes seems like a very <laughs> Phil Collins thing. It's very appropriate. Yes. Um, <laughs> thankfully for us, you know, the Phil Collins version of this song does not invite us to imagine Phil Collins having sex surrounded mm. by potatoes and carrots or, or otherwise. Instead, we're shown... Mm. Rachel Ward and Jeff Bridges giving it the full From Here to Eternity. See, he could have done a song called Against Some Spuds. <laughs> They're giving it the full From Here to Eternity, aren't they, in the film? And that was um, uh, yeah. almost as much of a kind of trope of 80s films as the whole thing of uh, from Battleship Potemkin of the pram falling down the stairs. Mm. Uh, that kept cropping mm. up everywhere, including in the um, the Untouchables, which I watched in a pub the other day. Um, yes. So, yeah, uh, it's just one of those tropes, isn't it? Yeah, you've got, you've got a couple. You've got to have them making out, as the Americans would say, in the surf on the beach. Yes. So that, that comes in there. Man, I don't think I'd be up for that. No! Because at some point, you're going to get some ocean spray up your nose, You're going to get sand you? in your foreskin. You're gonna, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's just bad, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seashells up your fanny. Yeah. I mean, it's just, no, it's... <laughs> It's not good. And also, fucking, you know, you get fucking jellyfish everywhere these days. It's, it's yeah. Um, of course, the thing to do if you get stung by jellyfish is to have someone piss on you. So I guess at least there's somebody literally yeah. naked right next to you. So, you know, there is that, I suppose. Hey, and you live in Brighton, yeah. Simon. No one's going to take a blind no, no, bit of notice. Exactly. Of it's just, you know, you get stared at more if you're not shagging in the surf and pissing on each other in Brighton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. Um, it's, it's funny that... that uh, Neil mentions the the Westlife and Mariah Carey version because, yeah, this song was number one twice, but not for Phil, of course. It didn't get to number one for him. Um, once from mm. Steve Brookstein, the uh, the X Factor man who is now and having opinions on the internet, man rather than a mm. singer. But yeah, the, um, the Mariah mm. Carey and Westlife cover. Have you seen the video of that? It is fucking no. hilarious, right? Um, <laughs> most of it is just filmed in the island of, of Capri, which is interesting. We, we say Capri for the place and for the drink Capri Sun but we say Capri for the car I've never figured that out but yeah, yeah they're mostly mucking around on, on boats and jeeps and on foot but there's this bit um, it seems like they only had access to Mariah for about six hours and they just shot a lot yeah. of stuff on the fly really there's a bit where they're all sat um, in a row as if like like a team photo um, as if it's a photo session waiting for a key change exactly yeah right so they're all there with Mariah um, pride of place in the middle and it's pretty hard to figure out which one it is who does this because three of the cunts had blonde curtains right you've got mm-hmm. kian egan nikki Byrne, and brian mcfadden 
but after much Google image searching and, and just uh, com- compare and contrast, I found out it was McFadden who does this. He's staring down Mariah's top the whole time really blatantly. It's so <laughs> funny. And to be fair, the director is more or less doing the same throughout the video. Mm. The director would now be prosecuted for this video. You know those scumbags who <laughs> invade women's privacy by filming down yeah. their tops on a bus or a tube train? Uh, and there was actually mm. legislation about this. Yeah, that's what the director's doing. And it's definitely what McFadden is doing with his eyeballs. He's definitely storing it in the bank for what... Uh, Neil mentioned the phrase, mm. a sense of release you get from the Westlife and Mariah vision. He's going to have a fucking <laughs> sense of release later on that day you can absolutely tell and and it's filmed it looks like it's filmed on a potato as they say um and i, I thought well who who is it who's this sort of sex pest with a camera who made it and that video um for the westlife and mariah one is directed by bill boatman and p snide now p snide can't find out anything about him bill boatman sounds like a fake name like postman pat or mm. bob the builder doesn't it yes but his credits are um after this are basically two more Mariah Carey videos and a Mariah Carey documentary, uh, Central Park Christmas Special and Cooking with Mariah Carey. Um, some of these under the name William Boatman. So either mm. uh, he's her guy or she liked what he did. Because prior to this, he'd mainly done cheap horror films. Um, but in right. amongst all that, there's a telltale title, Totally Nude Aerobics. So, you know, yeah, that probably <laughs> wow. explains his shooting style in this in, in the uh-huh. uh, Against All Odds video. But... For them to cover it was a weird setup in the first place. When you think about it, because yeah. it's it's a song about regretting the breakdown of a relationship, and it's being mm. sung by five men to one woman and one woman to five men. Now, you've you've heard mm. of thruples. This <laughs> this is this is a sextuple, and you know I'm a modern guy. I'm open minded. I'm I'm not going to shame anyone for that kind of domestic setup. I mean, it worked for Snow White. Uh, at least some of the versions of Snow White that yeah. I've seen. Um, but you've 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 <laughs> got to assume that even in the most extreme scenario, that it leaves at least two of them literally holding their dicks because there's only a certain number mm. of orifices available. Um, but yeah, thankfully the the Phil Collins version does not invite us to imagine him having sex uh, with Mariah Carey or Dwarf or Westlife or anyone it's just yeah. Rachel Ward and Jeff Bridges and that's fine by me because yeah he does look crap yeah. um, in his bad jacket uh, and his receding hair nothing wrong with that of course and I guess that no. was his whole shtick wasn't it it's just oh you know I'm, I'm the anti-pop star I'm just the everyman I'm, yes, I'm, I'm every bloke I'm, I'm the ordinary Joe and um, I suppose in a way in hindsight I, I've kind of warmed him a little bit because Mm. There's a particular memory I've got. He reminds me of this kid at school called Eddie. Simon Edmonds, um, Eddie, used to sit next to me in history. And even at the age of 15, Eddie had a receding hairline, unfortunately for him. And, right, he owned a pair of wraparound sunglasses, which meant he was able to roll up the sleeves of his black school blazer, um, put the sunglasses (laughs) on, and do an amazing impression of the You Can't Hurry Love video. So (laughs) whenever I see Phil Collins, I, I think of Eddie. So there is that, anyway. Oh. <laughs> hope he's all right the song gets rather lost in this video because it's not the thing that's really being sold here but it, as you've said it would almost immediately outlive the film and you know as dad divorce songs go it, it's one of the better ones isn't it yeah i'll give it that it, it, and it, it, you could almost see phil's version as almost like i don't know laying down a guide vocal 
for mm. future, future suburban gentlemen who are going through <laughs> marriage difficulties. Yeah. You know, when they're going to throw this down at some karaoke bar or something, they're going to be oh, they're going to yes. be aiming for exactly what Phil's doing here. But really over-egging it on the turn around and see me cry bit. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're 16, you don't want this in your oh, life. Oh, good God, no. It's neither use nor ornament. Mm. But they do now, though. Young people now, because obviously it's hip to be square. Oh, yeah. It's hip to be square now. And everyone under 35 loves Phil Collins and they love yes. Sting and they love Toto and they love Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Don't slag off Phil Collins in front of Stephen Gerrard. He'll headbutt you with his three head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, I I fought those wars at the time, and I can't let it go. Except with Fleetwood Mac, who I love, I love Fleetwood Mac. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I can't let it go. With you know, I no. I do have this weird conflict because, as some of you may know, I'm involved in a club night called Late Night Mini Cab FM. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, where yes. we basically play power ballads and we play the sort of songs that make you feel emotional when it's three a.m. and you're pissed in a taxi and it comes on the radio and you get a bit you know uh, maudlin about somebody you fancy or somebody you're missing and all of that. We just do a whole night of that now obviously if you stick on against all odds sounds it, it, no but it is it is honestly <laughs> yeah, you, no, you, no, you no. stick on against all odds by phil collins and people absolutely lose their shit they're just fucking mm. belting mm. it out and i i can kind of give it a pass yeah. on that on that basis at the time i wanted him to squire off fucking squiring yes. squiring squire <laughs> cunt, squire off phil collins mother squire yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> but when you're 16 and you hear this, there's only two reactions, both of them bad. It's either, oh my God, this shit on the radio again. I've got to sit through this for fucking yeah, yeah. hours. Or, oh shit, dad's playing that song again. <laughs> this ain't good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing this would have had completely different context had my parents, say, been going through a divorce at the time. But um, I guess, yeah, it might have some really horrific context in the, it, it, like that. But yeah, it's dreary grown-up divorce pop. When you're yes. a kid. By the way, Neil, I, I love the fact that uh, we can now imagine what you look like when you were listening to this stuff. Because there's that amazing photo that you shared on social media of uh, you sat with uh, your parents on the sofa in 1984. <laughs> and that is it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That was me. That was me. I mean, Mira was taking the photo, but for Top of the Pops, my dad would have been in the other room. My dad would have been in the kitchen, eating chillies and drinking homebrew. Um, but my mum would have been on that sofa with me and Mira. Brilliant. Um, telling us who was on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Simon Bates likes this song because fucking hell, he's going to hear it a lot of times at the end of his Altune segment from here on. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's right in his wheelhouse, isn't it? Mm. I, I've just realised I've never used the phrase in your wheelhouse before. Uh, oh, this, well I, done. It, it, it feels weird in my mouth. I don't know if I'll use it again. But, right. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, we've been talking about the film tie-in a lot and it was Oscar-nominated and all that. Have you seen the Oscar performance? performance of this no oh, oh my god. god i've heard about I've it heard right about it too. it's extraordinary because that year for some unknown reason the academy decided that the artists would not perform their own songs right. uh, the songs would be performed by someone else and phil collins really drew the short straw uh, it's introduced by um, jeff bridges the dude um mm. which is nice to see him as a younger man but what it is it's a dancer a Broadway dancer slash singer, but very much dancer, uh, yeah. we find out, called Anne Reinking, 
who was a um, at one time a partner and protege of Bob Fosse. Right. So she's from that ah. kind of showbiz hoofer background. Ooh. And jazz hands. Yes, and she sings and dances the song. And she's not a singer with the best will in the world. I don't care how many Tony Awards or whatever she may have. The first verse, she's kind of she comes out of the smoke at the back and she's she sort of lumbers forward aimlessly on her own. But then for the second verse, she's joined by this man in a billowing silky shirt. He looks a bit like uh, ice dancer John Curry or maybe right. a camp John Hanna. And, and together <laughs> they start doing modern dance to the song. Oh dear. It's a bit like that bit in, in the amazing sitcom Nighty Night where Julia Davis does a special routine to Lavender by Marillion. Oh, oh there's a bit where, and obviously it's lip synced, but uh, where Anne Reinking's vocal goes weirdly breathy and sharp on the So Take a Look at Me Now. She goes, So Take a Look at Me Now like that it's really freaky and the thing is phil collins was there yes he yeah. he had to sit through it he was in the audience and uh, and this comes over in his book that he hated it yes uh, he's he's really fucked off he's squired off he's, he's like uh. he's like squiring out he's squiring hell for squire's sake and there was a, a review of it in the la times that said the best that can be said about her performance is that the stage set was nice and that's really oh. true <laughs> fucking hell so true before we leave Phil Collins behind, um, I just wonder if we could just quickly talk about the reasons why he was so hated, apart from the kind of blandness of, of his music. And I think part of it is because he seemed to have no sense of humour about himself, despite giving off this kind of like only me jokey kind of everyman yeah. demeanour. Mm. He uh, used to phone up music papers and complain. Uh, yes. If, and, and, uh, did he ring up rock expert David Stubbs? I, I believe he, might, he did, yes. Which is wow. just incredible. But the other thing is that his political views have been, I guess, misrepresented because mm. there was this whole thing, uh, it was around the 92 general election, wasn't it, where the son said that he was was one of the artists who was going to leave the country if hmm. if Labour got in. He didn't actually say that. Uh, much no. much as I love to Tory shame people, what he actually <laughs> did, he th- he threatened to fuck off if to squire off if the government took loads of his money in tax, which was a, you know Labour policy at the time. But he is adamant that he's never supported the Conservatives. Um, mm. And, you know, there are other things, like he issued a cease and desist against Donald Trump when when Trump yes. used his music. And, and and he's been involved in anti-racism campaigns. And, and nonsense, let's not forget. Nonsense! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, a clause in his contract whereby all the royalties he earns in South Africa stay in South Africa and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he's all right as long as you don't have to listen to him. Mm. And even then, I quite—I mean, you can't argue with In the Air tonight, can you? That's a fucking great, great mm. track. And even stuff like um, there's a single that wasn't such a big hit after that called "If Leaving Me Is Easy." Yeah, it's got a sort of real Philly soul feel to it. So you know, yeah. I wouldn't—I wouldn't completely cast him beyond the pale critically. Some of the Avent's Genesis stuff that we've covered—it's been like, oh fucking hell, we actually like this. What's going it's on? It's been all right, but there's something curiously unlikable about Phil. Um, in the uh, is I mean, which actually comes out in this song. He sounds angry, you know. I mean, I know he's upset and all that, but he, he, he sounds yeah, like uncommunicably angry. And 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 I I definitely tied him in with that's right politics. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, probably wrongly as Simon says, mm. but that yeah, that whole rolled up sleeve yuppie aspirationalism seemed to be intimately linked for me in the eighties with yeah. Phil Collins. So. Was it this year that he was on Miami Vice? Oh, that. Really- and introduced Americans to the word wanker. <laughs> ah. 
You know, the word wank in America is so clean that uh, David Bowie was allowed to include it on on the uh, on yeah. the single version mm. of Time that came out over there. Because That's yeah, right, falls yeah. wanking to the floor. Americans just like, oh, it's just some British thing. Who knows? You know? <laughs> so the following week, against all odds, stayed at number two and would spend three weeks there. It would eventually become the 19th best-selling single of 1984. One above What's Love Got to Do With It and one below Like a Virgin. Win a Grammy for Best Vocal Male Performance Pop and, as we've mentioned, was nominated for Best Original Song in the Oscars, losing to... I Just Called... Yeah. What film was that in, anyway? Woman in Red. Oh, of course. Right, yeah, yeah. The follow-up, Susudio, would get to number 12 for two weeks in February of 1985, and he'd have eight more top ten hits throughout the rest of the 80s, including one and a half number ones. Easy Lover, it's contentious. Oh, that's a banger, though. I'm sorry, that's great. No, he's he's rolling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. contentious. Oh, it is a banger, without doubt. Oh, I love that tune. I love that tune. And the song, as we've mentioned, would be bound at the wrists and frogged march to number one by Mariah Carey and Westlife in September of 2000 and Steve Brookstein in January of 2005. Oh, and Against All Odds is released in British cinemas in a few weeks' time and will be fighting for attention with Footloose, Silkwood, Police Academy, Amityville 3D and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So, yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) And on that note, pop crazy youngsters, we're going to walk away from Phil Collins. Just leave without a trace, if you will, and extend an invitation for you to come and join us tomorrow for part three of this episode of Chart Music. So, on behalf of Simon Price and Neil Kulkarna, this is Al Needham imploring you to stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music.